0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something.
1: Welcome, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me as usual is the only man I want on this podcast. I need on this podcast my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here, as always. We have come to the end of our extremely fun journey through the John Grisham cinematic universe of legal dramas. And to wrap it all up, we just have to talk about one of our absolute favorites in the genre. Not John Grisham, but legal drama. It's the movie that stars Tom Cruise as a wisecracking hotshot Navy officer trying to live up to his dad's prestigious military career. No, we're not talking about Top Gun again. We're talking about Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men. It's got a rock star cast and one of the best scripts ever, if I do say so myself. And it has actual courtroom action. Motion to get started? Approved. Outstanding. With that, this is your spoiler warning. If you've somehow not seen A Few Good Men... And there are people out there, Patrick, that have not seen this film. I know that because I've seen people post on my Facebook Well, They they posted on Facebook or in the Facebook discussion group. And they've mentioned like, Oh, Hey, I just watched a few good men for the first time. That's crazy. So if you're one of those people that has not caught up with this film, please go check it out and then come back and listen afterwards. Because we're going
0: to, let me just, let me just say this. Uh, yeah, yeah. 2008 was the first time I watched it. And, uh, I remember being at my apartment with my wife. We were less than a year old into our marriage, and she said the same thing you did. Like, what? You haven't seen this? And so she had it on Vajas at the time, and so we queued it up Vah- on a VCR. VHS. Oh, VHS. VHS. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. It's how I call. It, yeah, VHS. Those tapes, you know, that. I know what, what
1: they know are. I just don't know what v- I'm like, just saying, it
0: just the for Norse the millennials out there that don't really know what this is about, yeah. And so we we watched it in my office on one of those like TV VCR combos, and I was like, "Can we not just go rent it?" She's like, "No, just put it in. It's good." And she was right; it was good, and it's been good the fifteen I'm, times that I'm I've very seen
1: surprised. It. Yeah, but but exactly, but like you just said, fifteen times or whatever since two thousand and eight, it's become a, a rewatchable for you, and it's it's a year rewatch watch for me. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I just I queue it up when I want to feel amazing about being smart and lawful and military, even though I'm not any of those things.
1: <laughs> yeah, Sorkin Dialogue, man. It's a comfort food for you and me. We'll we'll talk about oh, that specifically. All right. Well, earlier this week, you got me really excited, Patrick, because you started texting me trivia, which you like to do. I know you do this on your other show. And so as a tie-in, before we get started, we have not talked about this yet. I don't know why you're not like even trying to market yourself here, but I would like you to tell the people about your other podcast so they know what it is and where they can find
0: it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's been about eight months in the making as of this recording. Um, my friend Adam Rakoff, that you guys know from the show, has been a guest several times on on uh, on this series, from uh, recording Karate Kid to. You know, his background on the Full Metal Jacket Diary, that's kind of how we met him as the, he's a producer for that. He and his friend Matthew Modine were on the show. We got to interview them. It was fantastic. And through that relationship, he and I became good friends. And uh, back in January, I pitched this idea about doing a television show podcast. This notion of, hey, what would it look like if we were to basically do sort of a water cooler conversation, trying to recapture that week to week anticipation of a television show. And so what we've done is just that. We have put together a series of television shows, not just one, where we are starting to cover, hopefully in their entirety as the podcast goes on, different TV series that live specifically behind streaming services or those that are made as limited series or specifically for networks like Apple TV plus Paramount Plus, any Plus or Ultra or Max or whatever you put behind the network name. And um, so, yeah, it's called an original series. You can find it on anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we are on Twitter at uh, AOS underscore podcast. You can follow us there. We have new episodes that drop every Tuesday and Thursday. So we're doing two episodes a week that you can get kind of caught up on. Um, one of the, I guess, I won't call it drawbacks, but one of the differences in our show is that we're not necessarily the, the current. So we are talking first about Ted Lasso season one. It's a favorite of ours, but we get to go really deep into the scenes, do breakdowns. We talk about the characters, some of the technical stuff. That's one thing that Adam really brings to the table is that production background. He's a producer. And so he really kind of brings a lot to the table when it comes to that kind of knowledge. And so we we've had a lot of fun. Again, we've been kind of backlogging or or front-loading, whatever the word is, (laughs) a lot of episodes so that for the next uh, nine months at least, you're going to have consistency in terms of of content. If you want to check out the show, you can you know again, queue us up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. And uh, we have a pilot episode that really kind of breaks down all the details about why we're doing what we're doing, when you can expect them, all the, the different stuff. But just this is something I haven't really mentioned on twitter yet but uh for our first official like podcast season we're actually following what would be like a, a typical television show so we'll do a few months of episodes then we'll take a break in the in december and then we'll come back and finish strong january through april and then take the summer off but we're doing the uh, first season Netflix of can cancel you midway through yeah. your first season yep. Yeah, that's that's kind of the that that's that's the plan, and you know we'll we'll try to thwart it if we can, or maybe we'll get picked up like the Duffer Brothers and just go on for many seasons. Speaking of which, so we are in the uh, in the first season. We're covering Ted Lasso season one. We are covering Stranger Things season one, and then we're finishing off with the first season of uh, Marvel's What If. So, if you're interested in any of those, catch them as they come out if you want to wait, just like people who like to binge, go ahead and do that. All of those episodes will drop prior to the uh, the Christmas season. So you'll you'll get all of those episodes by the end of November.
1: Sounds good, man. I'm excited yeah. for it. And I'm excited to eventually come on and talk about Aaron Sorkin in the newsroom because yeah, yeah. that just has to happen at some point. It we will. Do it that. will.
0: Yeah, we are we're trying to figure out as we go. We don't want it to be something that we're having to be beholden to a particular series. We, of course, love Stranger Things. Um, I'm actually going through it for the first time. This is one of the things that we love about the series is that some of these shows that we're covering, I've seen, but he hasn't. He's seen, but I haven't. Neither of us have seen. So it's really an exploration and discovery and just figuring all that stuff out. But because we're keeping stuff strictly to a paywall perspective, you know, questions ask, hey, are you going to do West Wing? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? And man, I'd love to do a podcast on west wing but there's tons of those out there already and that's a lot of episodes it's 22 episodes for at least And you don't have seasons. the entire
1: cast and crew to join your show so yeah might not so, the-
0: <laughs> yeah but if we wanted to get our feet wet a little bit we are probably gonna cover newsroom at some point because it captures all the stuff that you and i particularly love about aaron sorkin and you know it's it's uh behind the paywall it's on hbo max and uh you know, as a yep. spoiler, I mean, I love the first two seasons. The third season was good, but not great. And so if we decide after the second season, we're not really going to pursue, we're okay with that. That's what you're going to get, you know, casual casual list, listeners, casual viewers who are like, that was good, but not great, or let's keep going. Uh, Ted Lasso is one of those that will obviously continue to move forward, Stranger Things, but, you know, who knows? We might just do a one and done for whatever we come up with. And if we can catch limited series kind of, singularly, something like, uh, what is it? The Queen's Gambit, you know, a six episode series like that. We'll do those as well. So it just gives us a chance to kind of explore TV series because there's so much content out there without feeling like we're going to have FOMO because we kind of capture FOMO with each other. We're like, all right, at least I know I get to talk about this with somebody a couple of times a week. And so hopefully our listeners kind of latch on to that, enjoy the conversation like we do.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Well, everybody check out that show, subscribe to it, listen to it, share it, all that good stuff. Part of the reason I brought that up was just because it needed to get plugged. But the other part is because I mentioned trivia to kick this little section off. And that is something that Adam in particular has a very strong love of. And I know that you usually read a lot of trivia as well. And so between the two of you had me thinking about that, but you were texting me these little tidbits, and I I, I had to stop you because I was like, oh my gosh, this is like incredible stuff. That <laughs> You're like, I did not know some of this stuff about this movie. So I thought maybe we could kick things off by you maybe sharing some of these nuggets that you found.
0: Yeah. So IMDb is always a great thing for me. Anytime I queue up a movie, the trivia page is the second place I go to after the actual screen of my television where I'm watching the movie. But this one just had so many great ones. I'll only kind of hit on a few. This is actually Aaron Sorkin's first screenplay. He has not done he had not done a screenplay before this. Obviously, it's based on his stage play and not a lot of dialogue got changed. But still, I mean when you're translating that to a you know film, stuff has to kind of get rearranged and stuff. But it's uh you know, that's a that's a big deal to have your first screenplay be as great as it is. So that was awesome. The uh idea of this courtroom drama I think it was Reiner who was talking about, he he actually listed uh, four rules or three rules for a great courtroom drama, one, a compelling court case, two, equally gripping protagonists and antagonists, and three, great actors. I remember when I texted that to you, you were like, four, has to take place in a courtroom. That's, yeah, that's a definite. So uh, we're looking at you, Pelican Brief. Come on. You gotta, you know, do your thing there. Uh, another great piece of trivia was about Kevin Bacon. He's apparently played a character who's been... Named Jack in like, it seems like 18 different movies. (laughs) Frost Nixon, My Dog Skip, Apollo 13, uh, Quicksilver, which I haven't seen, and Friday the 13th, 1980. You know, he was a no name at that point. And uh, wow. So it's, yeah. And then one of my favorite pieces of trivia was with regard to Tom Cruise. So he plays this character, Daniel Caffey, who is a lieutenant junior grade. And this movie released when, let's see, 1992. Apparently he got demoted because this rank is one below his previous Navy officer, which was top in Top Gun, has Lieutenant Pete Maverick Mitchell. So yes. clearly Maverick's reputation has preceded him, and he continues to get demoted. And maybe by the time Maverick Top Gun Maverick came up, he actually you know got promoted again and just kind of stayed there in the chair. Just had a chair, random
1: but... name change in the middle of it all. Yeah, but hey, we'll just <laughs> pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: The uh, the stage play that this pulls from actually had some interesting names attached to it. Um, Timothy Busfield, who's uh, one of the recurring actors on The West Wing, he was uh, he replaced the original Broadway character of uh, of Dan Caffey. Nathan Jessup was played by Stephen Lang, Michael O'Hare, and then Ron Perlman. Oh my gosh, I'm just trying to picture Ron Perlman as as Jessup. Like you can't handle the truth uh says Hellboy. You did, know what's Did you crazy. tell me something about Gene Hackman? I thought Gene, Gene Hackman, let me see if I remember this. So he yes, he'd actually turned down the role of Nathan Jessup because was. he was busy playing uh this character Little Bill Daggett in Unforgiven. Unforgiven, so, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which worked out okay. <laughs> it did. I, yeah, he so did all he, right.
1: He, my thing with this is and especially rewatching it now, there is no way this works as well without Nicholson. Like it just doesn't period. I mean, back to Reiner's four points. Well, sorry, <laughs> three. Right now i I'm like adding mine in. You can but add it back cool. to, back to Reiner's points of being a, a compelling antagonist and protagonist. Well, we, we obviously have all of those in this movie and, but, the, but the actor's part, Nicholson's moments in this movie are what make it so thrilling. And exciting and I adore Hackman and I think that Hackman probably could have come closest of anyone else especially after we've seen him three times in the last John Grisham series that we did but I don't know that he would have the outright commanding gravitas that Nicholson has and and we can talk some about like that and how it affects his decision making and how people follow him right i I don't see that in hackman in the same way and so i I wouldn't probably buy it quite as much as i buy it here it it really was just sometimes movies happen like this and you just get that perfect storm of casting and yeah it really worked yeah Yeah, that's cool stuff yeah well i mentioned in the opening that we both consider this one of the best scripts ever And that we're both, obviously, humongous fans of Sorkin and his dialogue. So I want to talk about that. What makes it so good and work so well in this particular story? Not necessarily us just rattling off quote after quote after quote, which we could absolutely do and have a blast. But what is it about this? And how do you write something like this where legitimately, Patrick, I feel like every... 60 seconds, maybe 120 seconds, uh, there's a line that is almost memorable to me or that stands out as a zinger of some kind, not just a a zinger in the sense of like, gotcha, but just as something that's biting and just has something interesting and, and unique in the way it's delivered. It's never boring. And so for me, that is part of what makes this such a fantastic film is I am locked into the dialogue. And when I'm watching movies in the background or re-watching movies like multiple times, right? A lot of times I won't necessarily focus on them a hundred percent. But this is the kind of movie where you don't tune out the dialogue. And a lot of films you can do that. You can kind of like, you know, your attention can dip in and out of a story. But what you see on screen visually, and specifically if there's any sort of action, those will bring you back into it. But this is a movie where I, I guess it's partially because it comes from a stage play, where that's what matters is the dialogue. But like, I am so locked into every single word coming out of every single mouth in this movie that I just love it.
0: So when I look at Aaron Sorkin as a screenwriter, I think what makes it so good is that there's a rhythm to his writing that to the ear allows you to be able to just be compelled and because it can be so complicated because the rhythm is so meticulous like there is a beat that goes with his dial with all of his dialogue it makes it feel more complex it makes it feel more expensive in terms of like wow i didn't think people could write like that because the fact is people don't talk like this you and i in our conversations the breakdown of conversation, because we live in such a, a digital age, it's one-sided with text messages or even with Voxes, you know, we'll spout off thoughts and then we'll come back and it gets the information back and forth. But sometimes the, the rhythm of that is lost because of the fact that we're sort of one-sided. Um, it's been a while since I've had a regular like conversation back and forth dialogue and i think that's the magic of what sorkin does here is he puts so many words into a dialogue but that dialogue itself is then amplified not just with a bunch of words but words that make you laugh words that make you think and so when you think about a sorkin screenplay you're not you are thinking about lines here and there but you're also thinking about the holistic like art of what that screenplay is and this is different than when we talk about when i when i look at like the oscars and i think best original screenplay or best adapted screenplay what we're really talking about outside of a sorkin screenplay is really the best adapted story so can we take a book and adapt it into a movie and that makes it a great screenplay an adapted screenplay or can we take a story and then dress it up with some good dialogue that keeps an audience an audience entertained along with cinematography along with the score All those things, that makes a great original screenplay. But when I think about a really great screenplay, I think about the way in which a writer writes. And this is what Sorkin is great at. He writes really well. I liked Molly's game. I didn't love it because it kind of, for me, fell apart in the third act. But his screenplay was on full display. His writing is really where he's good. And the biggest thing about that. Is not just the words themselves, but who delivers them. So if you watch The West Wing and you get this series of actors who have to memorize the script, this is this the thing about Sorkin's screenplays. Is you can't just wing it. You can't just like make stuff up if you forget the words because there's a reason why he puts a word here, an adjective there, a noun here, and then creates the sentence this way. There's a line that I remember uh, telling you where Caffey is. I think it's Kathy. I get all these names mixed up. Uh Tom Cruise's character, he is yeah, he's he's um he's talking to Jessup, he's questioning him, and at one point he's talking about what he's wearing or you know, what did he pack? And the there's a line in there that allows room for us to breathe a little bit because there's like this intensity in that questioning, in that interrogation. And at one point, I forget who it is gosh, the Escape. Anyway, so he's questioned about it and he says, is the colonel's underwear a matter of national security? It's lines like that that allow us to be able to go ha 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 in the midst of this intensity. So I think that that's where I love Sorkin's writing is that he has this great way of creating intensity and then taking us back. Intensity and bringing us back. If you watch episodes of The West Wing, there are scenes where... It's drama, 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 drama. And at the very end, there's like a little ha-ha moment that kind of goes, ooh, a little dig, which is what you're talking about. There are little digs here and there. And I think that's what makes his stuff unique because oftentimes when you watch or listen to screenplays or or watch people act as the screenplay goes along, it's only one direction. Like He, he has the ability to hit different notes, not only rhythmically, but also tonally and i think that's where i am attracted to his screenplays the most
1: yeah that's really well said that specifically just about the rhythm and that's i think what i feel and that is a great way to put it it's it's how it
0: moves
1: and it just flows in a way that is so nice and sumptuous to the ear like it is just appealing and i like that we do get the little bits of comedy but they're not haha comedy they're not laugh track comedy where the crowd stops and everybody claps for a second or laughs out loud necessarily it's hee hee, it's chuckle kind of comedy there's another great one where it's not intended to be necessarily even a laugh nor was the line about the clothes like you're talking about they're actually technically they're part of the examination period and that's the next section I want to talk about was the courtroom drama portion and what, what we feel about it and how it kind of compares to the John Grisham universe. So there's another line that I really like where he's got the Marine that's not one of our main ones on the stand. And Kevin Bacon's character comes up to him and he's examining him and He's asking him, like, where in this book is the code red? You said you follow the manual and that all you are, as a Marine, all you do is follow the manual, that you are 100% by the book. If it's not in the book, you don't do it, period. He's like, where's the code red? Turn to the page. And he's like, I can't do that because obviously the code red's not in the book. (laughs) You know. And Kathy walks up to him and he's like, can you show me where the mess hall is? (laughs) And okay, so when I step back and I look at this, and of course the guy's like, no, the mess hall's not in there. And he's like, "Well, then, how do you get chow every day?" And he's like, "Well, I guess I just follow the crowds, sir." <laughs> and and those are the kind of comedy moments where that is a great example of Sorkin dialogue that, for me, works in context of a, an entertaining story. It sort of heightens it in a way that is makes it more exciting and not necessarily a hundred percent perfectly. Like litigation, I don't know. It's not. I, I don't think that that would hold up. Okay. Yeah. Like I think that that line is probably not something that in court they would be like, oh yeah, that's a great way to get your point across. But for us as an audience, it does exactly what we need it to do. Yeah. And it's just on the line of like believable enough, but it also gives you that entertainment moment in between all of the drama, like you were talking about the heavier drama.
0: Right. And so that you make a great point that. When you look at a Sorkin-driven movie, that suspension of disbelief has to be there. So take the social network. That opening scene where Zuckerberg is talking to his then-girlfriend, and there's this back-and-forth dialogue that is so just fantastic. It's one of my favorite openings of any movie. Oh, Erica. Oh, yeah, right. You watch how that plays out. And it almost feels unbelievable because how could a guy be that much of a jerk? Yes, there are people out there that do that, but it sets up the character of Mark Zuckerberg. And I emphasize the word character because that's the thing about biopics. That's the thing about movies in general, where, that you have a sense of suspending your disbelief for the sake of entertaining your audience. And so when you look at a movie like this, A Few Good Men, you're right. A scene like that may or may not happen. Probably more often it wouldn't than it would because that's a little unprofessional. I also want to emphasize the fact that it's not just the dialogue, but it's the stage direction that exists in the screenplay. The fact that you have Kathy who just kind of grabs the book like almost in a in a rhythmic kind of, tell me about this. The way that Jack Ross, uh, Kevin Bacon's character that I couldn't remember from like 10 minutes ago, the way that he actually like responds is like, wait, where are you going with this? I love that because I'm like, yeah, where are you going with this? That's what I love about courtroom dramas. I've said this for weeks and weeks as we've gone through this. This has all that. This has the aha moments. It has the, oh my gosh. It shows that Kathy is thinking on his feet. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't, I don't think he was prepared to ask that question until um, until Ross did that, he's like, "Oh, I got it." It reveals so much about who he is as a character. This is where I think Sorkin's screenplay shine. You have to have the right actors actually portraying and delivering these lines. Um, Allison Janney, who was on The West Wing, she played the um, press secretary. She was highly praised because she really rarely, if ever, flubbed Sorkin's dialogue, and other people would. I mean, this was tough for Bradley Whitford. It was it was tough for these character for these actors to kind of get into that rhythm because some of them were not well trained. She was fantastic and she was one of the anchors of like, okay, if you're going to be in a scene with Alice and Janie, you better get your crap together because we're going to be if we do this more than twice, she's probably going to get annoyed. This is also uh the movie that uh, a few good men launched the walk and talk. This was another piece of trivia I failed to mention that the fame of the walk and talk is very Sorkin esque, but it's Reiner who actually introduced it. The original scene where that where it starts, where that happens, was originally supposed to be a sit down scene, and so the origin of the walk and talk was actually not Sorkin's idea, but it has become the you know synonymous with like the Peter Burns effect <laughs> inside documentaries, and I think that's fantastic because again, it adds that energy. That dialogue has energy and it needs to be able to physically move around a room or move through corridors in order to really kind of accentuate all that. In the courtroom, you don't have a lot of that movement, but I think that scene that you're talking about with Kathy and Ross and the exchange of that book shows a little bit of that. It shows that energy. Like, I never felt like the courtroom was, I'm just sitting back and I'm just listening to information and hopefully this jury of nine. I think it was, I think it was a jury of nine, which was interesting. I didn't know that, that seven men that. and two women. Yeah. I didn't know that that if, is, do you know if that's, is that specifically military or is that just for this it movie? Was. They were all in
1: uniform. It was, it's a, it's definitely a military court martial type, uh, ceremony. I just didn't know if they, ceremony, why they had nine instead of 12. But, yeah. Yeah. It was a military yeah. judge.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know why,
1: but that's what it was.
0: But, uh, but anyway, my point being, I think that the courtroom aspect of this gets amplified because of Sorkin's dialogue, but also because of the energy in the room and the way that these actors are able to physically um, act with each other as they yell when they need to. It's not all yelling, which I think is fantastic. There's physical movement around the room, back and mm-hmm. forth. Even the way the camera is just kind of cutting back and forth to the different uh, to the different characters. One of my favorite kind of moments of tension didn't even have dialogue. It's where Kathy is entertaining the notion of going further with questioning Jessup. Right. And he, he looks at his team. He looks at the accused, even the way that he drinks the water. And it's like, you could see his the water is drinking
1: shaking. is so key because he's shaking. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's yeah. He
1: literally is shaking. So, so I think good.
0: that's, an, that's another part of whether it's the direction you know, the director's point, or <clears throat> or whether it's Sorkin and his screenwriting to say, pause here, that stuff's just as important because you need a chance for that tension to sort of build up. And sometimes it doesn't need dialogue to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and it also, in regards to what, comparison the comparison, comparing this to what we have watched for the last two months, not only is there just a vast more amount of actual courtroom drama happening overall i enjoy the fact that we are not witnessing two attorneys that are i would say there's not a good and evil to this scenario whereas we tend to in the john grisham world have a pretty black and white view of which side is right and wrong. And they're not, there's not a lot of necessarily respect for both sides from the attorney tables. And this is different. Like clearly Ross is do attacking this from a very structured perspective. And he's following the rules much like Jessup is like, these are the facts as they are known. But I love that in the end, we see that he's not like, trying to do this even if he knows they're innocent right once he learns for sure and sees that they're innocent he completely flips instantaneously like he boom he's reading the rights fantastic 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 scene as Nicholson and Jessup is just like yelling and screaming and Bacon is in the back and this is another noted like excellent directing m- moment because. They take the time to have Jessup pause in his delivery a couple of times just long enough. And if you are really looking at it closely, which I did as a nerd, Kevin Bacon will amplify certain sections of the rights that he's reading right when Nicholson gives him a pause because otherwise he's in the background. And so like... You hear him reading the rights the whole time that Nicholson is just ranting and raving and screaming, but you usually can't really hear all of the words coming through because it's being talked over, but just enough times, you know, he holds back and lets the rights come through. I don't know. I just, I just thought it was really well constructed, but I love that in the end, you know, they're walking out and Kathy's like, see it softball. And he's like, he's like, yeah. Catch you later. I got to go arrest Kendrick. And and it's just like he immediately knows, okay, now I got to go do the right thing. And I I just appreciated that. And I also appreciated more of those small moments like you were talking about. The, The little things and the details in this courtroom drama that push it over the top. You mentioned one of them, which was the silent moment that stood out to me as well when he's contemplating it. Another one is the plea moment where... The judge asks him, do you, are you do you want to enter a plea? And Kathy says, yes, they're not guilty. He doesn't say not guilty. It's very specific, I think. He does not say, I'm entering a plea of not guilty. He says, they're not guilty, which is different than what normally in a courtroom drama, the language that is used. And I thought it was very important and spoke to. You know what we've been building up to in that moment right with him questioning it and going through this period of trying to discern I I just think it is so head and shoulders above it's almost embarrassing to me (laughs) that the John Grisham ones don't live up to this in the way that I kind of in my head had made them into because it it just crushes them it has so much better every single scene in the
0: courtroom is outstanding. Well, and I think part of that, Aaron, is that you have there's no wasted scenes in this movie. Adam and I will talk about the benefit of paywall television and the limited number of episodes. You don't have filler you don't usually have episodes that are just trying to get you from the beginning of the season to the end when you're trying to fill up a whole season of twenty two episodes you're gonna have you're gonna have a season that has a few like holes of like, well, that was kind of a wasted forty five minutes. And movies are can be the same way. You'll have scenes that are just like, okay, what did that add to the to the story? From beginning to end, I looked forward to each scene because each scene had something to offer. I absolutely love when Kathy and um I think it Caffy and Weinberg go and visit Galloway for the first time they go into her office, and Kathy's eating the apple. Again, the physical comedy is is great here. This nonverbal stuff, the blocking, I I I just I attach myself to these these things. It he is. is eating the he's eating the apple, and he's while he's talking he's looking for a trash can to throw it in. She puts her trash can out. He puts it in there. And you know when you eat an apple if you are eating it for longer than fifteen seconds, what happens? You get sticky fingers yep and so after he's you know trying to get the apple out of his teeth, you know he sits down and he i think it I think it's a wet napkin but he like rubs his hand really quickly and it's almost like he's psyching himself up like okay, here's what we're gonna do and that sets you up for kind of his attitude like his persona like how he's gonna approach this case it's like okay cool uh it's Tuesday let's see if we can get him twelve years and they'll serve three and we're good. And she's like, you haven't even talked to a witness or seen a single sheet of paper about this. He thinks it's a game. He thinks it's like, okay, cool. This is what I'm going to do between softball games is I'm just going to get these guys off. So much is shown in this moment, in this scene about not only him, but also her and about and, and Weinberg to an extent. But it's so cool because that scene bookends what we see at the very end where He looks back at the last scene of the movie. He looks back at the courtroom, and you can see that he knows he's changed. He has not only kind of exercised his demons of being in a courtroom, of exercising that fear, but he also recognizes that there's more to being a lawyer than just pleading down or getting people off. It's about really using the law and understanding the law and having that sort of, to use a Topkin phrase, that maverick kind of persona to be able to fight for those. And that's what I think Galloway finds really attractive to him, not sexually or anything, but like from a professional standpoint, like this is why she wanted him on the case is because he has that maverick mentality of like looking at things from different angles. And you see that play out in, you know, all these different scenes. So I love just watching these scenes individually, but I love how they're all connected. I don't think there's a scene out there in the movie that I don't remember vividly having some piece like a dialogue or an apple or something like that that i don't say man you're like 50 for 50 aaron with all your (laughs) your scenes there like there's nothing bad here and i think that that's what makes the movie great for me too
1: yeah i I mean i agree a hundred percent with that It, it is it's that same feeling for me on every single scene and and you're right he's got that cocky persona it's that's why we make the joke about top gun or even you could make a joke about days of thunder as well but the trying to love to your fathers it's a little different here because he's trying to do something different he is making a name for himself as the guy with the perfect plea deal record who never has to step foot in a courtroom because he's avoiding the fact that his father is a legendary trial lawyer and it's very clear it's never outright and i love Again, Sorkin dialogue because he, they talk around this so that you get the gist, but you don't. They don't ever specifically say the words that I can remember. You're afraid to go on to, into a courtroom because you don't want to fail at being a trial lawyer, but that because that's what your daddy was good at. But it's told to us in other pieces of dialogue at different times where you can piece together that that's clearly. The reason right that's why he does do this it's because he's got this and it's very 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 top gunny <laughs> like trying to to live up to it and and be that guy when everybody in the military knows your dad's name for his successes and so it's it's a great it's a great character and i sent you a screenshot of one point i, I love the relationship between him and weinberg Kevin Pollock in this movie is perfect in that supporting role. All the supporting cast, they're all aces. There's that scene in her office where he's like <laughs> they're joking about like explaining things. <laughs> like I don't remember what it was, but she says something about Gitmo. Gitmo. Is Gitmo and he's like he leans over, they lean in together and he's like that's Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> and the scene is almost shot for shot the same Thing that Anthony Edwards and Tom Cruise do the first time that they're at Top Gun training when Kelly McGillis is asking about the MiG and they like, or she's talking about the MiG and they lean in and they start talking to each other about it. And it's it's, it's just the framing, I, I it has to be on purpose. I don't know, but it's perfect. It's just so good. Anyway, every single moment is great. And the stand, so last courtroom bit really, but we didn't really talk about it, but Nicholson- is this the best moment of witness testimony in the history of film 12 Angry Men is a movie is phenomenal but most of what's phenomenal about that movie is what happens in the deliberation room i don't know if i can think of a better moment on a witness stand a more memorable powerful moment than this and i would have loved to pull the audio i thought about it but it's just so so good the way he delivers this whole line, the whole thing where he, keep he baits him and he baits him and he baits him. And like you said, we get the amazing like pause moment. And then just all of these iconic lines that you can't handle the truth. And then he launches into this explanation about not having the luxury to not have us on that wall. And, you know, and it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And I think, That for my money, I don't know that I've ever watched anybody on a witness stand in a movie and been more completely 100% engaged in that scene.
0: Yeah, I I can't disagree with you there because I think more than anything, this back and forth between Caffey and Jessup, it's important as you watch it because the first time I watched this, I remember thinking... Up until he says, You're GD, right? I did. I didn't think he was going to answer the question because he actually gave a really compelling explanation that a jury of nine could not ignore. I mean, I don't think the judge was going to be like, The jury will ignore what that outburst that (laughs) Jessup is saying. No, he gave some compelling responses. I also love the chess match. I love how. Neither of these characters are backing down from one another. So after the whole bit with Kathy talking about, you know, what he was wearing and the phone calls he was making, he tries to get up because there is, there's that long pause where he, uh, where Jessup says, okay, well I'm leaving. And he's like, no, sit down. I'm not done with my, my questioning yet. <laughs> and Jessup's line is so great. What do you want to talk about now? My favorite color, you know, (laughs) I can't. And I wish I could do a Nicholson impression, but it's just it's great because I don't know who has the upper hand at this point. I feel like I feel like Caffey does, but I I I don't know what his plan is. I think
1: Jessup does for most of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's only when he dives into getting him sort of amped up that that's when I think Caffey has the upper hand. I mentioned a movie to you a while back called From the Hip. It stars Judd Nelson and a handful of other folks that are not famous, famous, but you recognize them. And it's a great courtroom drama as well. It's got some comedic chops to it. I mean, it's it's got comedy not in the way that it's similar to A Few Good Men. It's not as heavy, but there are moments that are recognizable that we see in these scenes from A Few Good Men that exist in that movie, which is, I think, in hindsight, why I enjoyed A Few Good Men because it reminded me of From the Hip, and now it's sort of the reverse where I'll watch From the Hip because I love A Few Good Men so much, but it's still a good movie. So I would still say, if you can find it, uh, you know, I'll let you borrow it. We'll kick you over a digital copy or something. It's worth checking out. But I think that watching this play out, it just brings what I think we want our courtroom drama to be not just yelling, but fighting for the truth. Fighting for what we're trying to get to. It is about tactics. It is about manipulation. We talked about this in our Runaway Jury episode about the idea of manipulating for the sake of winning over an a group of people, in this case the jury. I never thought of those nine people at all. I would see them occasionally, but it was about it was about Caffy and Jessup, and about Ross, and it was about it was about the players of the game, not about the people hearing it. And so, by the time we get to that ending, that's what we're left with. We're left with two individuals, Kathy and Jessup, who Kathy has just said, "Checkmate, sir. Uh, go to the brig with your sister and have a pizza since you're having dinner with her tonight." <laughs> so, yeah, I, I absolutely yeah. agree. I think I don't. I can't think of another seen another movie that tops this and
1: it also includes like the whole examination includes the bit where he's like I'm done and he just gets up (laughs) he's like if you got no more questions for me and starts to walk away and then Kathy's like sit down I'm not done and the look I just though I love the looks on Nicholson's face all throughout this movie the way he looks at him like how dare you (laughs) did you just tell me that and he's like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Colonel and you will address me as such. And then you get the amazing, amazing line from the judge. And he's like, I believe
0: I've earned it, you know, and it's just, it's so <laughs> you good as judge
1: because <laughs> yes. you kind of put him in his place as well. So, all right. So let's talk about the case. It's a code red and, and that, and to your point, I feel like having watched the John Grisham movies while like them for what they are, the reason this is special to me You mentioned it. It's about getting the truth. I feel like so many of those were about finding a way to affect the audience emotionally, regardless of the facts, even if the facts didn't support necessarily the decision you wanted to have because of the law. Whereas this is a very straightforward, like if he did this thing, then he's guilty of the act, right, by virtue of giving the order. And so if you get to the truth, it, there's no Im- emotional manipulation necessary here. It is all about the code red. If it was ordered, then you're guilty instead of the people who did it for you because they were just following your orders. My first question, and I, and I want to try and do these in a couple sections, but like, do you think that code reds were wrong in general? Do you think the idea of inter-unit punishment or correction for people who are not abiding by the rules that the military and the in the unit and the corps whoever have agreed to do you think that this is a inherently
0: wrong idea it's a difficult question to say yes or no to and i think i, I will i will give you the the I guess the Tarantino approach. I'll give you my answer and then work backwards. Um, Yes, in that there is subjectivity to humanity. And so when you look at the military, and this is someone who speaks from a civilian standpoint, so I definitely am open to being wrong. The idea of conforming to the extent that you cannot have individuality, that you cannot be okay in your feelings, that you cannot have limitations, that those things are detrimental to the unit, to the family, to the core, whatever it is, this group becomes a a bad thing because there are limitations and that not everybody can run a certain number of miles. Maybe we can train our bodies to do that and that we eventually get to that point, but I don't know from a, from a human standpoint where equality lives among every individual on the planet. In other words, if I say the military is not for me, am I being anti-patriotic because everybody should serve because we need to respect the military. We need to respect the armed services. I can absolutely do that and not be a part of it. And I think it's because I have that choice and I have that awareness of Not just what I would call my limitations, but my alternative talents and capabilities and strengths and weaknesses that lend themselves to something else. When you talk about a code red, what you're essentially doing is you're saying, all of us are equal on all of these phases that we're going to enforce. So in other words, in the case of one of those guys who wasn't showering, they gave him a Brillo pad or or whatever it was and scrubbed him down. He never forgot. Could there have been better ways to reinforce that? Probably. To me, that's hazing. But I think the code red here that was used on this guy, I think, far outweighed what it was that he was trying to accomplish, which is, I want to go home. I think what triggered it was this evidence or this little nugget of information that was going to get out. I think that's what triggered the code red. So in some ways, the idea of a code red, this hazing, this neutralizing in order to get the unit to stay equal and stay strong on paper sounds good, but you've just eliminated the human element. And to me, as a civilian, as someone who's not in the military, again, I say that very cautiously, I think that's detrimental because individualism, and especially in humanity, when that gets taken away, when your moral compass gets gets taken away, when your dignity gets taken away, you're causing more harm than good. And so for me, I think code reds in this instant were incredibly harmful, but I think in general, the idea of a code red is not something I would agree with.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious. I don't think that there's a right answer here. I just thought it was, you know, an interesting perspective difference between us probably because having spent a whole career in the military not the marines which is a whole other ball game than the navy but i remember very distinctly coming into the civilian workforce and going to the ymca where i work now and it taking quite a few years and i still am not fully there but i went into this organization that is a nonprofit, and it has a culture of i call it touchy-feely But it's very soft. I mean, supremely soft, like there's hardly ever any corrective action or firing or anything like that that happens. There's no accountability for people who don't do their jobs the correct way or don't do tasks on time. We're just not good at it. And so I have had a rough go of it because that's not how I came up. I came up in a world where it was very simple. And like Jessup says, it's grave danger. You know, when you're protecting lives, essentially, or you're doing things that people's lives could be on the line, whether it's the people you're protecting overall or whether it's safety related, if you're out on a ship or, you know, handling firearms or whatever the case may be, everything is based on this very strict regimen of rule following you do things this way every single time and it's expected and if you don't there is a consequence and there is punishment for that and so I've seen strongly both sides and struggled with adapting and And I get why from a civilian perspective especially it, it's it looks like horrific <laughs> and I agree I mean, obviously, I'm not in favor of murdering people because they couldn't finish a hike. I think that's crazy. And they didn't try to murder him. No one was actually intending for that to happen. Of course, that was just the un, un- unintended co- consequence of their actions. But I-, I think there is, to Jessup's point, and you even said this, how he's pretty convincing during his monologue and testimony about the necessity of Marines following orders and having such a strict level of discipline, because if you allow them to question whether or not they should be able to finish a run, then what ends up happening is then they question other things and people will argue and complain about it and say, well, oh, well, they should always have, they should have free will and they should have the opportunity to question things. No, but that's not how <laughs> Until you've been there and you understand that that breaks the entire function of the unit operating, that can completely just ruin it. Because one person who doesn't do their job in unison and it falls into chaos. And then you can't operate when you need to in crunch time, right? And that's what you do in the military. You train, train, train. Literally, you could spend your entire career training for if something happens. Because when it happens, Patrick, you have to be ready and it has to be on autopilot. It has to be muscle memory and just boom. And you act and you do what you were new to do and you, you can't think. Just like Maverick says in Top Gun, right? Don't Don't Think, just do. And that's what it has to be. You have to operate and go. And if you stop and you think about it and you start to put yourself first or you go against the grain, then everybody else can be put into danger. And so that Jessup is thinking this big, broad view as a commander should. And I think that's what happens here is he loses the micro scale and the human nature of it. And there are probably ways in which this could have been handled to where Santiago gets dealt with and probably put out of the core. And I think it's it's ultimately Jessup's pride for me that ends up making this co-read and the way that discipline happens in this whole situation in the film
0: mm-hmm. go
1: off the rails. Because it's yeah. it's his inability to allow... Santiago to just get kicked out because you could have just kicked him out. You could have just been like, you know what? You're not fit. You're not pulling your weight. You're gone. But the pride of being like, I'm not going to allow that to happen. That is where, to me, the mistake got made and where the military has struggled (laughs) for decades and and has gotten better, uh, at least up and through the point when I got out, it had started to get better of people being able to kind of at least reel that in a bit within the realm of still keeping that that strictness uh, overall. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think, and you make good points, that when you're looking at the bigger picture, someone like Jessup makes sense to make to look at the bigger picture because he's thinking about Gitmo. He's thinking about the long-term ramifications of this. And you're right. If there's a deviation in the unit, you definitely don't want that because at some point, if you let this guy have this, then what's to stop? The snowball effect of like, well, then if he doesn't have to run, I don't have to run. You do set a standard, and I think that that should be and probably is communicated early on at boot when you are building yourself up. Conditionally, you're getting ready for this, so there is a standard that's being set. I think to your point, going the opposite way as your work is sort of as you're highlighting this touchy feelyness. That's not the greatest way either because you need to have discipline. Look as a as a leader. I am the Laza Fair manager, and I'm like, as long as you guys are doing your job, I'm not going to question it. But we have this goofy policy in place. I say goofy, it sounds amazing, where we have discretionary sick, which basically means unlimited sick time. It what it really means is the manager has the discretion to approve or not approve. And I have an employee at this point in their fiscal year <laughs> where in the past You max out at 56 hours with a few that, you know, with hours that roll over, this person is now at 80 and it's September. And I now have to have a conversation with them to say, I can't approve anymore. And if they ask why, I'll say, because my discretion, that seems excessive for a calendar year. I have to be blunt. And so there's a balance of being able to establish discipline. And I speak from a civilian side. I can't speak for the military side when I say this, but there is a balance of being able to be disciplined. And also be understanding. And I think what you're saying is that Jessup needs that accountability at a lower level. He needed with, to
1: listen to Markinson, <laughs> is what he exactly, needed. Exactly. <laughs>
0: because you have to have if there's one voice, it can't be specifically one voice. It has to be an army of one or the few, the proud, the marines, you this this core of people that are listening to one another. And as is said at the at the end. You know, we didn't fight for those who were weaker. We didn't fight for him. Your that core value is lost, ironically, because you were trying to uphold something that was for you greater than the individual, and that's hard. I mean, I, I see the difficulty in that, and I think that's what this movie does so well: is it really displays the complexity and of the of just the military life. How do you balance a person's humanity and their individualism with the need for them to be a part of a group and not be a thinker, just to do. I mean, it's not appealing from a civilian standpoint. I don't want to be a robot. but That's not what's happening here because I've heard stories from enough people that I work with who are all retired military who take pride in the fact that they were a part of a unit. They were a part of a family who thought the same and who had the same core values, who mimicked one another and who would stand beside one another and and defend the person next to them. Could I do that? Probably not, because that's a different mentality. So there's a an upside and a downside. And so how do you find that how do you find that compromise? And I think this movie doesn't answer that question, but I think it helps us recognize that there is a complexity.
1: Absolutely. And it's a tragedy that Markinson ends up taking his own life because of what people will consider brainwashing, but this essentially this like embarrassment that he was unable to protect these men was so painful for him that he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear the fact that, and, and you see it in Dawson as well. You see, or is it Downey? I don't know which one Harold. <laughs> is he Dawson or Downey with the, the one that's so like, you know, not the quiet guy. It's oh, yeah. anyway. Yeah. But you see it in him. Uh, he Dawson. talks about, you know, what would we do if we're not Marines? Like this is what we do. And we, follow the rules and if we're given an order that's what we do and and this matters to us he he has that whole spiel about honor code loyalty god duty you know and and that's markinson and that's these people take it so seriously and you take that away from them and it's crushing and, I, and I'll, that's one of the reasons i love the kind of final line there that we get from kathy to harrow when they're talking about it as they're leaving the courtroom and and they're both realizing like, oh, wait, they're going to discharge us dishonorably for this. And he tells him, Harold, you don't need to wear a patch on your arm to have honor. And I think that's just a perfect response to that, to remind him that it's okay. And and you don't need the Marine Corps to be a person of integrity and and value. And would you have ruled this way, by the way? Would you have, do you think that the ruling was fair? Would you have seen it any differently?
0: I wouldn't have if I hadn't heard the explanation afterwards with regard to the question by uh, da- uh, by Downey. Like, what? What? We didn't do anything wrong. It's like, no, we did. And I think that amplified it by the fact that as much as Dawson was willing to play by the rules of... Core God, I can't remember the order, but in order to go in and say, instead of taking six months, he was willing to go in and face the consequences. I think that same kind of integrity lived in the fact that he had understood that being dishonorably discharged because of conduct unbecoming made a lot of sense. So, yes, I would have ruled that same way because they didn't murder. They, the manslaughter wasn't on the table at that point. That's something I've learned through all this is that, oh, you can actually take something of lesser value off the table once you go to trial and go all the way as, um, as Jack Ross says, (laughs) where it's like murder one or murder two. But yeah, I think for me, the, the verdict made a lot of sense. And I'll say this, I'm going to highlight something you said several weeks ago when we were talking about, um, the verdict in uh, time to kill and how it was sort of complicated. I think this movie balances the ability to not be a feel-good verdict, but to allow justice to be served on multiple levels. And I think this is where the law really shines, in that you can be tried for and convicted of some counts, but not others. Uh, When we talk about uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos girl, she had like nine counts of conspiracy and fraud, It was only convicted of like three, and that matters. That matters in during sentencing, and that matters to to others where you don't get to a verdict. This was a little bit more simplified in that they had three counts: you had conspiracy to commit murder, you had murder itself, and then conduct unbecoming. Just because you're off the hook on one doesn't make you off the hook on the others. And I think that that's the beauty of this movie is that it highlights that component of the law, and it also allows for the sense of having the right verdict that can be multi-part in that, in that regard.
1: Yeah. I think I'm with you right there because I, I think if I was going to lean one way, it would actually be in more severe, honestly, and not less severe because there is something to be understood here about you are following orders and that is your job. But there, everyone knows every single person, there's an unlawful order and You have to be able to reason that out for yourself just as a human. And they're responsible for that. And they could have made that choice. It's the hard choice. It's not the easy choice to defy what your superior, Kiefer Sutherland, who obviously is Kiefer Sutherland and could kill you. But his order for them to do it would have reflected badly on them, would have probably screwed up their lives, right? Potentially their entire careers that's why it's called integrity cuz it's hard <laughs> you know like that's why we have a word for it it's not easy to do the right thing but that they didn't and therefore there is a punishment for that so i i agree you said it so well that it's not perfectly black and white it is gray and i think that justice was served while also allowing for consequence that was necessary and and that it's why it's such a great verdict such a great movie and story overall there's one thing that kind of stood out to me and this doesn't ruin the movie or hurt the movie really for me but it kind of I think maybe it dates it a little bit and I hadn't noticed it before but Demi Moore's character largely isn't talked about when we think think of this movie it's all Tom Cruise versus Jack Nicholson because that's the final scene but the importance of her character and the fact that she outranks him in the movie they even talk about that like they call that out right Jessup calls it out at the lunch he's like oh yeah by the way i just realized something and he's like she outranks you and there is an alarmingly gross amount of sexism in this movie in the dialogue and and i don't think it's necessarily old hollywood just showing a culture how it is i think i think there's a little bit of that because this is this is reality for how military was at this period for sure. But I also think it maybe is Sorkin even smartly commenting on it a little bit and kind of, you know, critiquing it. There's three specific moments that I wanted to just briefly mention. One is at the beginning when she walks in to her office with her superiors and they are talking about the case and she's like, I want the case and she's uh he says would you like to you know take a seat she's like no i'm good to stand and he says sit down so he, he tells her she has a choice and then forces her to do what she wants or what he wants then he tells her to leave the room or asks her to leave the room or something and she's like well i'm good and he's like no leave the room so we can talk to, talk about you behind your back and when she comes back in and is kind of shocked that he says it's not going to be her he uses the words. I promise you division will assign the right man for the job. It's very intentional. And I, I think that's why I think it's critiquing here. But then we also get a moment of Tom Cruise talking about her a couple different times. One of which is when he first meets her, she says something and he he says something to her about how she's making him, She's like, he's like, be careful, you're making me sexually aroused. It's like, wh- oh, like why would perfume. you- no, that's no, the second one. The first one is okay. the baseball field when he's sexually sexually around. Oh, right. The second one is the perfume, where he's like, Don't wear that perfume in court. It breaks my concentration. And then he tries to like save it with a joke. But those are very like he cause he he said, you know, because he then he looks at Weinberg and he says, I'm talking about you. He, it's like he very clearly is trying to save it himself. But then there's another one with Jessup at the lunch where after he talks about her being a higher ranking officer. <laughs> he goes into this whole like tirade about how great it is to get a blow job from someone that outranks you and how he couldn't possibly experience that because it would have to be the president. And I don't know, man, I don't I, again, I don't think this is a bad thing about the movie. I just it stuck at, it stood out to me now in a way that it didn't then. I think because of the way that culture has rightfully turned a spotlight onto the way that we talk about people uh, and the way that that men treat women I think that maybe at the time these are lines that would have just gotten laughs and people would have been like haha that's just guys being guys but nowadays it, to me it shows a way in which the military used to be and a way in which people would treat women that is not what we want it to be now and I just it really stuck out to me and I kind of wish that Galloway would have gotten more of a moment. Like she certainly is part of the team. And she's the inspiration that gets Kathy to the point where he does his super lawyer thing. But it's all kind of behind the scenes, really. I mean, I know she's at the bench, but I kind of wish she would have gotten a little more credit because she was very important and vital to this all the way through. And she kind of doesn't get treated the best, in my opinion.
0: No, I agree. I don't think she does at all. And I think it's I would say it's an appropriate level of chauvinism to show off that chauvinism. The lines that you mentioned, I think, are very much Sorkin's way of saying, I want to call attention to this, not as a Me Too moment or anything like that. I mean, this is 1992, which I think, again, another reason I like this movie is it feels timeless. It's one of these movies that if this had released four years ago, I would have believed it with this cast, with this dialogue with this story those scenes that you mentioned i think highlight less in some ways knowing the backstory about how sorkin was asked to sexualize Kathy and galloway's relationship like there was a sex scene where you know a la top gun that he was asked to put in and he said no i'm not going to do that i think reiner said take it out yeah because it doesn't make sense for that. It doesn't, I mean, but it was it was, it was, was asked to be put in because of the time in which this was coming out where you had, let's just throw it in. Let's just get these guys together. Let's create that sexual tension because that's what people want to come see. This is why I think Aaron Sorkin is really smart because he doesn't write for the audience's approval. He writes what he knows and he writes what he feels like is going to be the best for the characters that he creates. Again, I go back to the West Wing. When I first watched it, my dad turned me on to it. And my dad, he and I, are we lean more on the Republican, conservative side of things. Before he watched the show, it was getting pitched to him by a friend of his who was very much a Democrat. And he said, oh, you mean the left wing? That's what he would call it. He would jokingly call it the left wing because the politics of the show centered around a Democratic president and his, cap- his cabinet and his staff. And so from an outside standpoint, you're thinking, oh, great, political agenda all over the place. You watch it. Is there a lot of Democrat heavy stuff in there? Absolutely. Because Aaron Sorkin is very democratic. He's very much a liberal. And I think he would tell you that he doesn't do that intentionally, but he writes what he knows. What I like about Sorkin is that he has that Pollyanna-esque edge to himself or to his writing where he wants to find the best in something. And so if I know that about him as a writer, even if it's his later, like 99, 2000, early West Wing days I'd like to believe that he's putting Galloway's character in here and not l- making her look like a trope like oh let's throw let's throw her in here as the sexist like article to to attack I think he was calling attention to the fact that in a heavily masculine world it's hard it's difficult to be a female represented military woman the opening sequence which I think is just fantastic in terms of just watching these, uh, these Marines do their thing. I think it's Texas A&M. It's their like core that's doing it. So cool. But watching her walk and actually dialogue, what she's going to say, how even how she's going to say it would be I, who would like to uh, be a representative on this case. I mean, she's timid. She's intimidated by something like it's a big case. And when she walks in, I never saw her as being like, oh, that female, she's not going to get it. I mean, she is uncomfortable. And I think that's what Sorkin sets up early on is that she's confident enough to ask, but she knows she's going to be in deep water if she's actually given the opportunity. I never for a second see Kathy as the savior, as someone who brings her up. I think she and Kathy and Weinberg all win this case he's on full display, uh, Kathy is, because he's the one talking. There are a couple of times, Erin, where she stands up to Jessup and she said, I mean, and he's trying to pull her down into the lunch. And I love that about her. I love that her performance is not one. It's this great balance of being unapologetic about who you are, but also being aware of the discomfort of being around a group of people or a certain core of men that, are set in their ways. And that's why I think Jack Nicholson plays this well because he's referred to as the old man. I mean, even, uh, Kathy says that he goes, the old man is wrong when he talks about the possibility of, of Kendrick misrepresenting or mishearing the, the order to do a code red. But I think for her, she is someone who doesn't, she doesn't need saving. I never feel like she needs saving. I feel like she takes the punches but she doesn't let it get to her. She doesn't use that as fuel to say, I'm going to win this case. It's going to be about me. It never is. It's about the guys, it's about the, the clients that they serve. And to me, I think that's a level of integrity that you would get lost in other movies where it becomes about her and her femininity or about overcoming masculinity and toxic, whatever it is. I think if this movie were made today, those notes would be given to Sorkin. And they would say, listen, I need you to beef up this female character, I need her to slap down some of these men because we need to make sure that she's empowered. She's not empowered as much as we'd like in this movie, but I think it's appropriate for when this movie came out and because of the nature of what this movie is.
1: Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, you know, Tom Cruise gets his kind of transition from Top Gun into this. And then she gets her transition from Navy movies. And I, I like to think when I was watching it, and I was picking up on the, these sexism bits. The fact that GI Jane is like an extension of this as well, in which she ultimately does get her come up in a very yeah. powerful way. And so I just yeah. thought that was kind of cool that we had like the Tom Cruise Navy double and we actually got the Demi Moore Navy double as well. And I, you know, hadn't thought about that when I was going into it, but pretty neat. Anything else that we missed? Uh, Supporting guests. I love JT Walsh. We just briefly touched on Markinson, but he's not in the movie a lot. But but, Christopher Guest is the doctor. I guess he has a long-running relationship with Rob Reiner going back to even like the Princess Bride and probably before that. Um, Just everybody's so good, man.
0: Yeah, I think Kevin Pollack stands out to me, at least on this this time, particularly when you sent me that picture of the side-by-side comparison between. Him and Caffey and uh, Maverick and Goose. I mean, I think they're they're awesome together. And he is so unassuming. Uh, the one of the moments that I love with him is when Caffey's really confiding in him, saying, "Should I put Jessup on the stand?" And he goes, "If it's me, I wouldn't. And if your dad was in the in that seat, he definitely would. But you're not your dad. And he never really. I don't think he ever tells him to do it." but he kind of gives him permission to explore that option. I also love the fact that when he's looking around, nobody ever nods. Nobody ever goes like, yes, you should do it. Continue with your investigation. He just looks at him. And I think that that look gives him that empowerment along with Galloway and the two on trial. So yeah, I I love Pollock in this. He's, 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 He's just kind of that quiet strength for for Kathy. And I think he's there to kind of take some of the, the jokes that he, he dishes out. Uh, but yeah, he's really good.
1: Absolutely. Well, last but not least, I'm assuming this is trophy room. Sometimes we don't even talk about it. So they're, cause they're just not, but this is right. This has to be.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No okay. doubt. This is <laughs> I, just make it, <laughs> I wanted to just
1: make absolutely sure. Cause we don't put a lot yeah. in anymore, but this is definitely one. So
0: it takes, it takes, it takes something special. Well, that's going to do it for us on this edition of Feel and Film. And that will officially wrap up our It's the Law series. We hope you've enjoyed going through the verse as well as bookending this whole bit with a little bit of Tom Cruise. I know we have. And continue to listen. We're moving forward. We're really actually moving forward by going backwards. We're fans of the movie Real Genius. So we're covering that next week. I'm bringing my buddy Adam on, the resident 80s guy. And the three of us are going to dialogue about this classic 80s movie with our man, Val Kilmer, in a young and hilarious role. So be sure to tune in for that. In the meantime, have a great week. Enjoy what you're watching. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. And we'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you.